Welcome to FYI, the four-year innovation podcast. This show offers an intellectual discussion on technologically enabled disruption, because investing in innovation starts with understanding it. To learn more, visit arc-invest.com. Arc Invest is a registered investment advisor focused on investing in disruptive innovation. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. It does not constitute either explicitly or implicitly any provision of services or products by Arc. All statements made regarding companies or securities are strictly beliefs and points of view held by Arc or podcast guests and are not endorsements or recommendations by Arc to buy, sell, or hold any security. Clients of Arc Investment Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Welcome back to FYI, Arc's weekly podcast on innovation and technology investing. On the podcast this week, we have Will Hershey, co founder and CEO of Roundhill Investments, Arc's analyst, James Wang, and myself, Nick Gruss. Gentlemen, thanks for being here today. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Nick. Will, can you give us your high-level view on the gaming industry? Where do you see it going? How big is this market? A lot of people don't realize this. In terms of gaming and where it is right now, you're talking about a $150 billion industry and one that's growing high single digits, low single digits rates per year. For reference, that's larger than the global box office and music industries combined. Just to give you an idea of the scope, I think people have a difficult time, especially older investors, appreciating and understanding the size and scope of it. And I think that touches on the global nature of it, really. Games are very much so global in the same way sports are. And I think we see that analogy made a ton, especially as it relates to esports. And for us, in terms of where we see it going, there's kind of a few trends, I think, that are playing out right now that really get us excited for the future. The first is that of esports. We're seeing people, unlike other forms of media, take advantage of this second derivative of watching people play games and interacting with those people, whether it's professional esports players or streamers and content creators. And that's really driving tons of excitement. It's driving tons of advertising dollars from big Fortune 500 companies. And that's really kind of at the core of our investment thesis for our ETF. I also think you have to look at mobile and what that's doing to change the world, democratizing gaming, but I'm sure we'll dive into more soon. That's a great point about esports. When you think about physical sports and you just think of it about a ratio, which is the number of people who play versus the number of people who watch or the revenue dollars of sports equipment versus the revenue dollars of sporting rights. That's got to be an order of magnitude toward consumption versus participation. Do you think digital gaming will have a similar kind of outcome or or maybe there will be more participation relative to, I guess, consumption? That's a great question. And I think when we frame that discussion, we need to think about the fact that esports and gaming more broadly are tied at the hip, right? Esports doesn't exist without gaming. And In terms of what that ratio looks like, I think it's very much so going to vary game by game. You have certain games that are very predominant with a casual player base, a game like Fortnite. Just today, we were having a discussion, though, where League of Legends just came out with their viewership for the 2019 World Finals. Peak viewers of 44 million. These numbers are insane. 44 million, 22 million average viewers, and over 100 million unique. And in League of Legends, I think... The infrastructure there, which has been put together by Riot Games, owned by Tencent, has developed into something that really actually looks and feels more like traditional sports in terms of participation, where you have viewership and viewer ratio that is competing with the actual player base. 
to give you an idea of the scope of that game in terms of its player base, 10-year-old game averages 8 million daily unique players at its peak. And I think that you know, with esports, we're really just kind of in the first inning in terms of what that could be. It's something that if you go to Korea or China is a lot more mainstream and accepted than it is in North America and particularly the US. I think that's going to change over time. In terms of ratio, it's going to be higher towards people playing than it is traditional because you have to play these games to understand them and appreciate mastery of them. That's so true. But it will still probably be more consumption in the absolute terms than participation. Not as much as physical, but still probably revenue, like the opportunity is, it seems like consumption will be larger in the grand scheme. Of things. I would agree. And you paint a really good picture here of esports. Can you describe how is esports and live streaming different and similar and how are they coexisting? For, for us, when we look at the space, we see esports as the professional version of live streaming. Live streaming, you have a lot of amateur players, but there seem to be both really big opportunities. Can you go into this? That's a great question. And I honestly really appreciate it because most investors can't distinguish between the two. And for us, I think that both casual streaming and content creation, as well as esports is part of our investment thesis. But in a nutshell, the difference is this. Esports is just that. It's professional teams and players in organized leagues competing typically for prize money. Separating that from, I think, a famous content creator most people have heard of, Ninja, and everyone's heard his name and, and associates him with esports. Yes, he was a professional Halo player and then you know pro Fortnite as well, but he's really first and foremost a content creator and someone that people want to engage with on his stream. It's not necessarily that he's the best player. And I think we're at an interesting point right now where uniquely the revenue dollars right now are more tilted towards that casual way of engaging with this media. The esports professional side of it, we're just starting to see and to figure out what that looks like. They've figured out how to put ads on Twitch while you're watching Ninja play. What it looks like for something that mirrors traditional sports is, is just in its infancy. And this is a market, well, it doesn't really have a parallel in the physical sports world. In the physical sports world, you're either making money via sports equipment or ticket sales to Madison Square Park, or you're making money off the content of cable rights. Michael Jordan couldn't just go out on his own and make a bunch of money being an independent person on the internet. But you can do that. And it seems like that's the big opportunity in esports. A hundred percent. That's like the equivalent of watching Ninja on stream is like the equivalent of like getting a camera in Steph Curry's like three point shooting practice session. Right? Just to give listeners an idea of the size and scope here when it, we're talking about esports and gaming, more people watch gaming and esports than Netflix, HBO, Hulu, and ESPN combined. You're talking about 400 million people globally right now this year that will watch an esports event. That's going to grow to 600 million by 2022. And like I mentioned earlier, the US is uniquely not that large a piece of a pie. It's probably 20% or something of that. It's a lot of it's taking place in different parts of the world. From your perspective, I think listeners have a good understanding of maybe the major players in live streaming. You have Twitch, Mixer, some of the big names, but in esports, how is the Nerd ETF and Roundhill Investments looking at that space and who are the main players that are buying up these leagues and really getting into esports? Yeah, so I'll start with your second part first. In terms of the leagues, and this is really important to know, the owners of the IP in this situation, aka the game publishers, the game developers, the Activision, Blizzard, Riot Games of the world, 
they are in a unique position where they control the ecosystem. We saw it with Activision where they took Heroes of the Storm esports and said, no more, doesn't exist. And they're in a place where they can really control what this looks like because unlike traditional sports where the three of us could get a couple of buddies together and start a pickup basketball league tomorrow, we can't start an Overwatch league without Activision's buy-in and having them on board. So I think that's just a unique point there. In terms of streaming, the way we look at it is in the US, you have the largest tech companies in the world really are investing into their streaming platforms, right? Microsoft Mixer, Facebook, Facebook Gaming, Google and YouTube, Amazon and Twitch. When you're talking about getting exposure, for us anyways, when we're talking about thematic investing and trying to get exposure, if you're investing in Amazon for their exposure to Twitch, I mean, if they shut it down tomorrow, I don't know if we'd see much of a move. Really, we're looking to names that are truly exposed and there we have to look overseas. So a couple names are, are Huya and Douyu, the Chinese streaming platforms, because as we've seen with other sites over there, uh, YouTube and Twitch are banned. So Chinese viewers have to look to localized platforms to get their content. Same in Korea, but for a different reason. Korea, Africa TV is the predominant platform there, just simply as a result of kind of the, the community feel and the way they put out content. I was super pumped to see Africa TV as the number two <laughs> holding in your index. I had no idea. I watched and played StarCraft back in the day. So GOM TV, ESL, <laughs> uh, that was all part of my daily routine. I had no idea they were a public company. What's their business model and then how do they compare to the Chinese folks? I knew right when you said that you were excited by seeing Africa in there, that you were a StarCraft guy. That was 100% <laughs> what I knew you were going to say. They have a similar business model to the Chinese streaming platforms. And in their case, they've, they've also diversified outside of gaming and esports. And I think that's important for you know investors looking at these live streaming platforms to understand. Even in the US, the fastest growing channels are not gaming and esports on Twitch. They're just chatting and IRL, which is in real life. And Africa has expanded what kind of its core, which was built around StarCraft, where it operates a couple leagues. They also operate a PUBG league. But for them, their business model is typically based on virtual gifting. And this is what we see in China as well. And it's something that I think is very difficult for US-based investors and people to understand because it's something we don't really have here. But it's where you're contributing to the content creator or the streamer or whomever that is. It might be like an, the equivalent of an emoji or an emote in the chat. And they're taking a cut of the real dollars that are paid for a virtual symbol of gratitude or thank you or you know, awesome play. Does Twitch have an equivalent mechanism or like, or is this mechanism basically not really happening in the West? It's not happening in the West in the same way. Twitch gets there by utilizing subscription model. So they have a tiered subscription model where, you know, if you're paying for the top tier, you'll stand out more in the chat and they have emotes as well, but it's not as large a portion of revenues as it is in the East. So in the East, you mentioned Duyo and Huya. We had spoken, and I had heard this before and, and seen this in my own research. Huya takes 50% cut of virtual goods. Is that industry standard? And why aren't we seeing virtual goods as prolific in the US as we do elsewhere? Yeah. So when we're talking about the East, it's important to know, and I like to call what's going on here right now, for those who are unfamiliar, the other streaming wars, which is what's happening in gaming, where you're having the top content creators sign multi-year, multi-million dollar exclusive deals with the top US streaming platforms. We saw this already play out in the East. It's probably 
two to three years ahead of where we are in terms of development now. And I think that it's definitely industry standard there, but we've seen a consolidation amongst a handful of platforms in that part of the world, right? People like to refer to Huya and Douyu as being price setters because they have an effective duopoly on the Chinese live streaming market, which for reference is five times the size of, of the US in terms of MAUs right now. So I think that they've made the market and they're both also notably backed by Tencent. So they're kind of the price setters and that's become standard. I would also note that, and this goes back to my earlier point, when you look at Douyu, for example, in their recent release, they highlighted 60 to 70% of their content creators are under multi-year contracts. So they've got together all of this talent, the most exciting people to watch, play, and stream. And they've locked them down in a way that they can make these arrangements on a long-term basis. And clearly, it's working for the streamers as well. And we're starting to see that now. I think there was an article a few weeks ago about Twitch locking down a number of top streamers after the departure of Ninja. And then who is the second to leave? Shroud. Shroud. And on that point, it's it brings up this interesting discussion of in gaming and esports, and not really esports, in streaming, who has the power? Are there significant platform effects? Is Twitch king because they're where everyone goes right now? Or is it the content creator? Has Ninja transcended the platform that is Twitch? And then the third party you need to consider are the game publishers. Most people don't know this. We saw a period of time where Nintendo said, no streaming RIP. We own that IP. We don't want you distributing it. The game publishers have realized that's not a good idea because this is like the best form of marketing you could ever ask for. But that kind of dichotomy between those two parties is interesting to play out. What we've seen thus far with Ninja and Shroud leaving Amazon's Twitch for Microsoft's Mixer is their viewership has gone down. In Shroud's case, I, I just read, I think it was something like 75%. So we're seeing potentially a ton of, val- a ton of value and power right now in those platforms. So it's the platform that these streamers have not transcended yet, but have they transcended the games themselves? Is Ninja so tied to Fortnite? Because as soon as I hear that name, I think Fortnite. And I can't see a a scenario where he's not above this IP that is Fortnite. It's a great question. And I think it's very much so a case-by-case basis. Like in Shroud's case, he just plays first-person shooters and he'll play them all and he'll still bring in a huge audience. Ninja uniquely became the face of the game to a certain degree where you're absolutely right. He's associated with that game and he probably will be for the near future. But when these guys go on stream and they say, I want to have fun and play a game that I never play. Like if Ninja streamed League of Legends, he's still getting tens of thousands of viewers. Then it kind of brings up this concept of too, who is the audience? And in Ninja's case, it skews much younger than it does Shroud. There are all of these different factors kind of in play. So do you see this market breaking out as it has where top streaming platforms will continue to sign talent and lock them up for multi-year contracts? Or is there going to be a different future where Mixer goes a different route? And how do you see Twitch maintaining its lead? More and more streamers are starting to depart. It's funny because I think if you ask most industry people, they would say Mixer and YouTube have better technology than Twitch does. And that's potentially a way for them to win in the long term. Right now, Twitch is in a tremendous position of power, right? They can they control, like call it 60 to 70% of the Western audience. We are seeing other platforms emerge in other parts of the world. I have a really hard time seeing dollars being spent on a handful of content creators getting you to where, where you need to be. That being said, in the case of Microsoft, for example, you have endemic 
assets that they have to promote through their platform, right? They have Project Scarlet, their cloud streaming, their cloud gaming platform that's set to come out. They have the new Xbox releasing next year. They're potentially in a position to spend more on things like acquiring content creators than does Amazon, where it doesn't have the same endemic product to sell. Microsoft has built that brand. They have gaming IP for bucket loads of gaming IP. For sure. I mean, Halo, as an example, personally, I'm an Age of Empires guy, which just got re-released. I don't know if StarCraft overlap there, potentially RTS. I don't know. <laughs> These platforms, it seems like we have three platforms right now in the West, Twitch, Mixer, and YouTube they all take a really hefty cut from these content creators, right? Is there still an opportunity? Certainly there's an incentive for someone to come in with just like a disruptive cut. We will only take 10% or 15%, yep. a, you know, a, a Patreon model or something like that, where a brave browser, where it's just like, you know what, your margin is my opportunity and we will build something super low end. And even if you lose maybe 50% of your audience, if your, if your take rate doubled, then that's worth it. Do you, do you think that's still a possibility? You didn't mention the fourth, which is Facebook. Facebook's actually larger than Mixer right now, even though Mixer's in the headlines for all these splashy moves. Facebook, I think, is the lowest when it comes to take rate. And that's been a way that they've been able to grow their creator base and to grow their viewership base. But I think it comes back to kind of the stickiness of these platform effects I was talking about. It kind of relates to the decision of Ninja and Shroud leaving Twitch for Mixer, right? I think they got some more autonomy. You know, A lot of these streamers, people don't realize, are streaming 10 hours a day to maintain their position. Position. They're signing now more salary type deals that look and feel like salaries you or I would get. But I think there's some stickiness there. I think it's really difficult because if I'm an up and coming streamer and I want to get noticed, right now I need to be on Twitch. I can't get noticed if the others don't get to critical mass. And it's kind of this chicken and the egg thing. Are there independent projects like, you know, blockchain is basically all about this, right? It's, it's all about gaining autonomy back to the content creators and not being at the mercy of these centralized platforms. Are there blockchain takes or other takes where it's trying to disrupt this large network? Like these four networks are almost like the US broadcast network, yep, right? Back 100%. Are there attempts at kind of chipping away and doing this kind of bottom-up approach? I mean, there are other streaming platforms that are being built out there, like Caffeine is one of them, in which Fox is a stakeholder. But I haven't heard of anything blockchain-esque giving the power back. I think you also need to keep in mind that these are resource-intensive platforms, right? These are video streaming platforms. Not everyone has the resources to go out and do it, especially where you're hosting videos on demand as well, which is a big part of this. Actually, most of gaming viewership is not live right now. Most of it's video on demand. And if you look at YouTube which put this out, I think, last year. Gaming, I think, is the number one most viewed topic on their platform. About 80% of that is not live, but replayed, video on demand. Do you see a world where one of these content creators does transcend a platform? And it doesn't seem like today they have that power, but if you look at sports today, there have been cases where a few players in their particular field have actually transcended the sport. Look at Conor McGregor in the UFC. His brand is as big as the UFC at his peak, Derek Jeter, what he did for baseball. Is there going to be a day when one of these streamers comes up and is that popular that they're able to pull that much weight in this field? I find this this dynamic so fascinating. Yeah, yeah. No, I think you maybe indirectly brought up a good point, which is if it's going to happen or if it happened, it's going to be a streamer and not a professional esports player. We don't yet have at least in this part of the world, we don't yet have the equivalent of a Derek Jeter in a professional esport. The individuals who people know and love are content creators and streamers. We haven't seen that in true esports yet, but I think Ninja was probably the closest thing to that. I mean, his brand 
is bigger than gaming. I mean, he's going on Ellen show. He's going on Jimmy Fallon. Like he became the face of gaming. And in that sense, I guess you could say he transcended Fortnite and transcended Twitch. Bringing it back, let's focus more on the gaming platforms now. Is cloud gaming, and you had mentioned this uh, a little bit before, is cloud gaming ready for prime time? We've heard of it in the past. It didn't seem that the technology was there, but now you have Google Stadia and a number of other services coming to market. Are we ready for cloud gaming? Maybe just a background. What is cloud gaming for for a non-gamer audience? Yeah. So cloud gaming is, uh, I'm trying to think of the best way to explain it, but it's similar to what we have right now in terms of the content delivery that we have for platforms like Netflix, right? You can go on your iPad, on your iPhone, on your computer, on your TV, and stream and effectively deliver content by having it housed in the cloud, not having it natively installed anywhere. That's what we're going to see happen and take place in gaming. And it's effectively, for those people out there who are familiar with owning a console, it's effectively going to deminimize the need to own a gaming console because you'll be able to play and enjoy these games on various platforms. Now, are we there yet in terms of... I mean, Google's attempt at it, for those who haven't been following, was... I mean, it fell flat on its face. And I think with gaming... What happened? I think you're referring to Stadia, right? Yeah. So Stadia was Google's cloud gaming launch. I keep hearing it was a fiasco. What actually happened? Sure. So they launched the platform. They launched it with a handful of games, no exclusives. I think that if I was going to point to one factor that didn't drive any adoption or excitement, you need to have kind of that killer app, if you will, for people to take a change and try something new, especially in gaming. They really didn't have that flagship game or title to bring people in. That's one. But the bigger issue with it was latency or lag compared to when you press a button, how long does it take for that to be reflected on the screen? And if you're playing, especially competitively, even if you're playing casually, if you're playing a first person shooter, which for those people don't know, that means you're holding a weapon and you're looking as if you're the character. If you're playing a first person shooter at the highest levels, you're talking about fractions of a millisecond that makes the difference in your gaming experience. If you're watching Netflix and it's buffering, it's like, okay, This is not the end of the world. In a game, it's very different dynamic. It could be the difference between winning and losing, and gamers don't want to lose. I am so surprised that latency was the issue because Stadia is a second generation, maybe third generation cloud streaming attempt, right? The first generation was OnLive and and Gaikai. I remember beta testing those. and The latency was there, but wasn't horrid. We're so many years past that. It's like 10 years or something. And Google is, of course, a global top four cloud hyperscale platform with so many distributed data centers. The fact that they couldn't solve latency and they're Google, that's kind of appalling. And you guys might know this better than I, but I would imagine that 5G potentially plays a role in getting that to where it needs to be. I don't know enough about 5G, but I hear it as a buzzword enough to know that it's relevant. (laughs) So yeah, I mean, the key to solving latency is basically to bring the data centers closer to your house. Global data center deployments are very coarse grain. You might have, for some companies, they're counted on the continent scale, and you really need to be more like at the city scale. So, Hmm. and maybe some better connectivity. I think that's, that's what's needed. I want to get back to the benefits of cloud gaming because I'm someone who logs on to Fortnite or Xbox maybe once a month. I'm not a big time gamer. I'm not a professional gamer. Is that latency really going to impede my ability? Would I even notice as someone who is a casual player? And does that still appeal to the mass market of gaming? It seems like the price point is so much lower than that of consoles. And then you have a subscription that it does still fit and it does still have a market fit. 
I agree. But I think in terms of where we are right now with the way it launched, I mean, you can look up videos on it. Like you're pressing jump and like you can see, like you can notice it with your eye. You don't need to be an expert to know that this is not optimized for what it should be. I think Destiny in particular was a game where you could just tell it was struggling to deliver the content. And to your point, James, it is interesting that if anyone could get this done, you would think it would be a Google type. But at a higher level, you're absolutely right. There's no reason that if we figure out the tech side of it, that it can't work. I would say though, that you need to find a way to bring in a game that tons of people want to play. Stadia launched and there was nothing that there was no exclusive. There was no reason that if I'm just a gamer right now that plays console or PC that said, I need to get this because this new game, if they put Cyberpunk 2077 as an exclusive there, it would work. And that's a fascinating story and game what's going on there. But I think you need to have that game to drive adoption. In Xbox, we saw it with Halo being the the primary driver of adoption there. You know, you had several exclusives in PlayStation that that drove players there. I think originally Grand Theft Auto was a PlayStation exclusive. But I think what we've seen is when we're having these big shifts in terms of the way people are, are consuming games, it's taken the IP to be the driver, not the tech. I guess one very top level question on cloud gaming, and this is the one that people have debated, Matt Ball has written about, is it a market creation event? Does it create a new market or does it cannibalize the market? In other words, is it going to bring millions of people who just couldn't be bothered or couldn't be motivated to buy an Xbox to get into that style, that that level of gaming? Or is it going to mostly replace people who are who bought an Xbox because they, they had to do it as a means to an end? And now you don't need to buy one. You can just sign up Netflix style and, and you, you would you'd be on your way. What is the market dynamic from a TAM perspective? That's a fascinating question. And I never really thought about it in those two distinct kind of outcomes. If I had to lean one way or the other, I honestly think it will cannibalize rather than create. I think already what we're seeing in mobile gaming, which is the fastest growing part of the market right now, you know, you can play Fortnite or PUBG Mobile on an iPhone 6. And that IP has done more to bring new gamers in different parts of the world, including Latin America, including India, including Southeast Asia. The IP is what's driven people there. I just don't know if cloud gaming introduces new people to the market. I think if you're going to point to kind of a revolutionary technology that gets more people involved, we're not there yet. But for me, that's that's virtual reality that gets the masses involved. And then we're talking about things beyond just gaming applications in that case. But I would lean that the most obvious effect that that it's going to have, this is the last console cycle. We have a new PlayStation, a new Xbox released next year. That's probably going to be the last time we see that happen. And what are the ripple effects there is a company like GameStop is in trouble. A company that's built on selling hardware is in trouble. But I don't know if it brings new people in. Could it help those that are already in the space get more exposure to games that maybe they wouldn't have tried? Let's say the technology gets sorted out, you have no lag time and and it does work. Would it mean that more people would be willing to try games that they wouldn't have gone out and purchased a $60 download for? That's certainly a possibility. And I think you look at like what Apple Arcade's done, right? Where they're doing a subscription model where all of the games are actually free to play. Like I played games on app, using Apple Arcade that I never would have even heard of. And I think that's certainly one way to look at it. I think you also have these 
distribution platforms like Steam, which is owned by Valve, or Epic Games Store, which is owned by Epic, the creator of Fortnite. And those have really become the grounds for people discovering and enjoying new games. It could potentially take place in a cloud format. But I think this all comes back to the main question. Do you have something that gets people in the door? And we're just not there yet. I mean, you'd, ha- you'd have imagine a case where you know, a partnership with a large gaming developer or publisher to get exclusives to, let's say, if you want to play World of Warcraft, you have to use Google's platform. That can work. But this comes back to this concept of who controls the power here. And I think, you know, a lot of it resides in the owners of the intellectual property. If we put our investors hat on and we think about all these uh, themes, sub-themes unfolding in gaming, cloud gaming and streaming, both from an esports perspective and from a bottoms up kind of a content creator's perspective. What do you think is the largest opportunity that's emerging over the next three to five years? Like among the things I mentioned, maybe something I haven't mentioned, is there a clear thing that's like, that's where the action at, that's where the market is actually expanding in a dramatic way? Yeah, and I kind of touched on this a second ago, but I think the mobile gaming to me is what's going to have the most direct impact on changing the entire landscape. And I talked a second ago about how you can now, with smartphone hardware technology, you can run really advanced games on your phone. And what that's really done is it's democratized gaming in a way that when you used to have to pay $500 for a console or $2,000 for a high-end gaming PC, you're now introducing parts of the world where it's simply a question of what is smartphone penetration rate in these areas. I like to look at you know India, Southeast Asia, Latin America as an example, because to me, you want to talk about getting new users into the fold. It's on a regional basis that you're getting new people that haven't had the, quite honestly, the capital to invest in these things before. And mobile gaming is, I think, probably the most exciting trend like right now for the next few years. And we're even seeing that flow over into esports where, you know, trying to play these games on my phone, I have a really hard time. But we're now even seeing competitive professional play take place on your phone. And one thing I would also highlight is in the case of mobile, especially in the West, it doesn't have the same stigma attached to it of gaming being nerdy, if you will. And I think that does a lot for bringing in a female demographic that in the West has historically shied away from being the gamer girl, if you will. I totally see your point they're making about mobile. And that's been true for basically the last 10 years, right? Mobile has been driving that mar- that the whole, basically saving the entire gaming market, giving it that growth characteristic. But I guess I was just saying, is the action really at the gaming level as in buying the games and playing the games and the hardware associated with it, which is where a lot of the mental energy and press and, and, and stuff seems to be focused on? Or is it on the consumption side? where it's all these weird stuff like virtual gifting and Twitch subscriptions and just new dollar, like greenfield dollars flowing into the ecosystem. It seems to me just just from our discussion in the last half an hour that that's where the new interesting um, emergent revenue is coming from. I would agree with that. And I think that comes back to where we started the conversation, which is around esports and streaming. And esports is, I think, personally eventually going to overtake several traditional sports. You look at Major League Baseball, the average fan is 60 years old. The NFL, you have concerns around head injuries. And I look at soccer and basketball being kind of global sports that are here to stay. When we're talking about esports, we're looking at, once again, something that is very much so global and something that is very young in terms of its audience, also predominantly male. It's an audience that advertisers see tremendous value in. 
How can they best communicate with that audience? Just this past weekend, we had an in-game event, and this is another area of growth. I don't know if you guys saw this. We had an in-game event inside of Fortnite where they had an exclusive trailer for the new Star Wars movie broadcast in Fortnite. You had to be in a specific spot in the map. You watched the trailer inside of the game. And now we're getting to like Ready Player One type stuff. But you had to watch it inside of the game. And on top of that promotion, they also included an in-game item, which was lightsabers. And uniquely to games, you have a way of driving engagement with an advertising activation where you can utilize that world, that digital world to get people to pay attention to something that they otherwise wouldn't have. And I think when we get into that area, that's the longer term secular trend of what this could really become. Esports is a part of that. You're really talking about second life, right? Like that, yes. that moment that just happened is what second life was trying to create in, in that very super early version of the world. And, and of course, like alt space for VR, like there's been so many attempts over the last 20 years of creating a persistent digital world that is not nerdy, that is actually relevant and that's organic where people go and hang out, right? It's go 100%. people go hang out in the virtual space and stuff happens uniquely there. It seems like Fortnite is, is legit second life. I think it is legit Second Life. I remember the real Second Life, but Fortnite, you're kind of looking at, and people call it game as a platform, right? It's so much more than playing a game to win. In fact, you know, if you ask most kids why they're going on Fortnite, they're going on Fortnite to hang out with their friends. It's become this concept of a digital third place, right? You have work and you have home, and now you have Fortnite and platforms like it. And it's really, really cool to see it play out. And I think tying it back to esports, what we have in esports is kind of our first view at the digital and the physical worlds kind of colliding in a way that they seem just familiar enough. They look and feel like traditional sports, but really we have a community interacting with something taking place inside of a game. And you could go crazy here with kind of thinking about what that means, but you're absolutely right that this is a really exciting moment. And I think Fortnite's done a tremendous job of becoming that platform. It's a question of how many other games can replicate that. So I think where we're we're heading here is, you know, we're talking about Second Life and these in-game events that feel like real life. I think the one catalyst here would be VR, AR. What are your thoughts there? How would that enhance an event like Fortnite's Star Wars trailer or their Marshmallow event? Just talk to us about your viewpoint on VR and how that's going to accelerate this. So I think to date, we really haven't had that killer app for, for VR. Right, like VR is an exciting technology that I think a lot of people believe in for the long term. Gaming is clearly one of the most obvious applications for how it could look and the way it could work. But we really haven't had an experience on VR to date that's made the average person want to get in and try it. It's kind of more of a novelty than a real part of the gaming business thus far. And it, I think it's less than a, I don't want to throw out the numbers because I'm not in front of them, but it's a marginal part of the business. I think longer term, alongside this conversation, you can only imagine what it would be like to go to the Marshmallow concert, which we didn't talk about. 10 million people virtually attended the Marshmallow concert in Fortnite. Experiencing that with VR could be tremendous. And I think going back to the esports side of things, you know, taking advantage of a digitally native medium. Imagine a scenario where instead of being physically at the stadium in the stands watching a screen in front of you, you're inside the game in the stands watching that way. I mean, the, the possibilities of what that could mean are tremendous. And I think 
really for me, that's where I get so much more excited about esports than traditional sports. The possibilities for the way you can consume it are endless. Right. And it's funny you mentioned that I bought the Oculus, the first edition of the Oculus. I had used it a bunch of times. The one app that I found to be just amazing was the World Cup. I was able to actually sit in the stadium and watch the live game in Oculus on my couch in New York City. Yep. It was incredible. So I see where you're saying that you may be in one of these games watching people play that game, following them around. I think that is so immersive and that that seems like the natural evolution for these devices, for these headsets. And I think with games, you have agency that's assigned to both players and in this case, hypothetically viewers, right? Let's imagine that I can enjoy and experience a game completely uniquely from the way everyone else can. Uh, let's say I want to spend my time running around following Ninja the entire game in this hypothetical where someone else takes a top down view and views the whole map and someone else, right. you know, stays in a very particular area. There's so many different ways of consuming the content and we really haven't touched the iceberg of what that could become. Let's take a cut at this China versus the West angle, which uh, seems to be inevitable in every part of the economy. You said the U.S. market was kind of small for esports and, and the impact like 20% or something. China is its own universe and the rest of the world, if you will. Mm -hmm. In terms of kind of the market breakdown, do we expect China to be larger than this rest of the world segment, or is it still going to be a relatively small fraction? We're seeing, for example, in other markets, China just has these unique dynamics where the TAM just ends up in a place you do not expect. Like in food delivery, China is bigger than rest of the world combined hmm. and then some, right? In e-commerce, it's twice the penetration of the US, but in absolute numbers, it's not like larger than, than the whole global economy, obviously. Where, how, what's it like in gaming right now, China versus rest of the world? What does it look like in scenario? Yeah. And on a higher level, in terms of just gaming revenues, forget about esports for a second. US, I think just this year is going to pass China to be the largest market. So the US has already done that from a high level gaming perspective. In esports, it's a different story. Going back to our League of Legends example from over the weekend that we just got the new numbers, of the 44 million peak concurrents, 40 were China. So you're talking about 90% of the viewership coming from China. Now that brings up other questions like data reliability issues, like how legit are those numbers? We won't go into that conversation today. But where that takes me next is in gaming, similar to traditional sports, you have regional fragmentation amongst games. And I think that this is a unique thing for people to understand that the same way that cricket is not popular in the US, Dota 2 is not that popular in the US. And we're seeing different ecosystems in different regions really take hold of different games. And I think you really need to look at it on a game by game basis in terms of its ecosystem. Like for me, I think a big part of the reason why the Overwatch League, which is a franchise city-based starting next year league done by Activision didn't take off is because the teams are all based in primarily in the West and the player base is in Korea. And I think understanding these dynamics is going to go a long way in terms of seeing where that capital is going to flow and everything keeps coming back. I think the one thing is everything keeps coming back to the actual IP. That's interesting. And I see it as what would help that is having one of those name brand players, right? I think Ninja did a lot for Twitch and, and now conversely, Twitch has done a lot for Ninja and he's moved on. But when you talk about these different leagues, you need a face that people can put their name to, to help accelerate the pace of adoption. I totally agree. Like in this Overwatch example, you had a player base that was predominantly Korean participating in localized events in the US. And I think 
when I look forward, you know, the next franchise city-based league, and these are the models that are resembling traditional sports is Call of Duty, where you have a large casual player base that already exists in the US. And I think that that's that's something that can't be overlooked here, right? And in the case of Overwatch, I think a lot of people in the industry would consider it a manufactured esport. It wasn't a game that had a storied history that had a large player base built in. It was something that was designed by Activision to be an esport, to be something that was watched. And I think the games that are going to be the most successful in terms of having people want to watch and consume them, whether that's professional or streaming, is going to come naturally from building up that casual player base. And last question here before we go, I want to talk a bit about Battle Royale and what that's done for viewership for these platforms that allow everyone to stream on. How is that changing the way games are consumed from a viewer perspective and also the way that they're played? Yeah. So I'm trying to think about where to start there. I mean, for those who don't know, Battle Royale is a large number of players dropped into a single map and all competing as the map shrinks. A hundred is Fortnite, 50 is Free Fire. It depends. Apex Legends is 60. So it all depends. But really what that's done to where you're going is really placed an emphasis on the individual as opposed to the team. The games that have been most successful as True, true esports are typically five on five, three on three. In Battle Royale, it really made it all about the individual um, and not about the team. And I think that's why Battle Royale resulted in the ninjas of the world, because it was him versus everyone else. If you were watching his stream, you were cheering for just him. And it created this interesting dynamic where you're having heightened personalities as a result of that mode. And uniquely different in a battle royale that you're not taking a top-down view where you can see what everyone's doing. You're watching from a single person's perspective as they compete against all the other participants. Right. And among the game publishers, you have really great global coverage from Tencent to Capcom. How do you think about game studios in the context of your theme? One could argue that it's a content production business and there's no structural advantage to each of them, no classic network effects. And well, maybe if you're a really massive multiplayer and you catch on, but like, why would these be more defensible businesses? Wouldn't their parallel be kind of like TV production studios? A lot of them are wrapped up in conglomerates, but like, you know, Lionsgate or ABC Disney Studios. Why would game studios, in your mind, be, be interesting investments in this area? Yeah. So I think historically, you've been spot on. Historically, gaming has been notably hit driven and it's been based on a game studio's ability to generate new IP and then distribute it. And we've seen a shift in terms of the way these companies approach business to what we you know, in the industry like to call games as a service. And Fortnite is a great example of it, but we're seeing this play out with other games as well. I mean, Call of Duty, a new one is released every year. But that IP has built itself in a way that they can predict with a certain degree of predictability that Call of Duty is going to sell a little bit more or less than it did the previous year. Same thing's going on with the sports simulation games. If you're a FIFA player, you're going to buy the FIFA every single year. And what we've seen is these larger publishers have over time learned to kind of consolidate in their top franchises and their top IP. World of Warcraft, another example, Diablo, they're continuing to do what we saw in the film industry where sequels and third versions are continually released. That's already and continues to be done in gaming. It seems to be like resembling the Disney model. For through Lucas and Marvel, they've basically established a very fixed cadence coupled with sound execution that 
basically every summer, every Christmas, you're going to generate X million dollars in revenue off Marvel or, or Star Wars IP. No, exactly. And I think investors have wisened up to that and assigned a higher multiple to properties that are more predictable using Electronic Arts Sports Sim franchises is the best example. On the other side of the coin, look at Take Two, where a ton of their revenues derive from two franchises, Red Dead Redemption and Grand Theft Auto. And those are games that take a lot more upfront investment. They're long lead cycles. You're talking about several years in between games. There, you could potentially say, is there more risk there? I don't know. But they're layering that in with other titles that are released more frequently to kind of smooth out what to your point, could be something that that's rather lumpy. And James, getting back to your point, it almost feels that Disney has taken a bit from the gaming world as well with building out the MCU, building out these characters. And you're starting to see crossovers where you had Star Wars, Fortnite. You also had Marvel doing Fortnite as well. And you're starting to see this crossover where gaming IP finds itself into the movie industry and movie industry IP finds itself into games as well. Yeah, absolutely. It's hard to say who's taking inspiration from whom, but right. the, the business model, both have found a way to make what used to be a hits-driven business more predictable. I, I can't tell if it's just through better execution or not, but definitely that's happened for both industries. Right. You always hear Disney being floated around as a potential acquirer of one of these businesses. And I think certainly on the surface makes a ton of sense and there's a lot of synergy, but I would also caution that running a games development business, a lot different from running a movie business. Definitely. I thought we had finished our discussion, but that's just such a good opener that I'm going to have to <laughs> I forgot where I read this excellent essay on how the TV establishment and the, the kind of media establishment, basically TV and movies, need to learn from gaming and how so far there's been, they recognize this market is growing faster than them, is in, in the numerical dollars larger than them. They don't know what to do with it, right? They're just like, well, what do we do with this? And they've made attempts at doing something with it. Notably, Warner, you know, bought some IP from, developed some IP from the Batman franchise, mm -hmm. you know, Arkham Asylum. And so that became something. But I think they sold those off or they basically decided to stop developing that, that IP. It is fascinating. Both our creative industries, both have the same kind of business model problems. But they have, and there's just completely just right for synergy, right? You're, you're literally same IP, Star Wars, gaming versus the movies. The media side has not managed to know what to do at all with the gaming side. And the gaming side doesn't seem to care to get into a movie production other than, you know, things like that Warcraft movie that was, was so horrible. Didn't we have a Mortal Kombat movie way back when? I definitely watched <laughs> Isn't that. Isn't there man. an Angry Birds movie on the way? Or <laughs> has that that. That's has... not, I'm, I'm not the target demo there, but I think you're right. But what do you think? Well, like, why are these two industries, which seem to... In a world where conglomeration is any chance you get, let's do it. Telco providers will buy content studios, things that don't even make sense. And yeah. here we have two industries that are completely on the same level and they don't know what to do with each other. I mean, in terms of like potential M&A, I think what you have with the game publishers, a lot of them, they don't need to sell themselves. And I think you're seeing also a lot of them are staying private for this exact reason. Like once you have a hit game, it's potentially like a, a really great business where you don't need to raise capital. A lot of these companies don't have debt on their balance sheet in any meaningful way. So I think that might play a role in part of it. The bigger structural issue is the type of people you need to hire in running a game studio and the type of work that goes into it is very highly skilled. And it's not like you would have a ton of synergies by bringing one of these publishers in-house. It's not like you have one of your, your movie producers go in and get involved with the gaming guys. It's just a very different skill set. But what we're seeing is partnerships like EA, you mentioned Star Wars, EA works with putting those games out as an example. EA also licenses with the traditional sports league. I think partnerships is probably the way that continues to play out. 
But in the future, Netflix mentioned this on their last conference call, their biggest threat engagement and viewership is gaming. It's not Disney. The longer that stays the case, the, the, you know, the ability to kind of ignore it and, and be competitors you know, might go away. Will, thank you so much for coming on. It's great to get your perspective on gaming. Hope everyone enjoyed the podcast. And thank you again, Will. Thanks so much for having me. That's it for this week. You can find the full ARC team on Twitter. We'll catch you next week. ARC believes that the information presented is accurate and was obtained from sources that ARC believes to be reliable. However, ARC does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of any information, and such information may be subject to change without notice from ARC. Historical results are not indications of future results. Certain of the statements contained in this podcast may be statements of future expectations and other forward-looking statements that are based on ARC's current views and assumptions, and involve known and unknown risks and uncertainties that could cause actual results, performance, or events to differ materially from those expressed or implied in such statements.